This is Jason Albert, and you're listening to Nordic Nation from Faster Skier. You know who you are, maybe you won't admit it, but selection criteria is what makes you tick. There's the objective and the discretionary, and we try to get to all of it in this episode. We speak to U.S. Ski Team Head Coach Chris Grover and new development coach Gus Kading about the recently released criteria for, okay, take a breath, the upcoming World Ski Championships, World Cup starts for the new season, and the 2019-2020 U.S. Ski Team Selection Criteria. That's a lot of teams and starts and a lot of criteria. So just a note before we get going, you'll not hear much from Kading until the latter part of the interview as he was mostly involved with the new ski team criteria. I'm just going to have you guys introduce yourself. First, Chris, can you introduce yourself and uh, where are you right now? Yeah, this is Chris Grover. I'm head coach of the U.S. ski team and uh, I'm at home in Haley, Idaho right now. And Gus. Uh, this is Gus Kading. I am in Park City, Utah, fresh off a uh, New Zealand camp, and I am the cross-country development coach and athlete management system manager manager on the data side. All right, so you folks on the U.S. ski team have posted uh, three different criteria over the past few weeks. One pertains to World Cup team selection. We also have criteria on world championship team selection, and we also have criteria, which we'll get to last, I believe, which is uh, 2019-2020 U.S. ski team selection criteria. You know, let's start off with World Cup criteria for, for this year. And just to sort of set a baseline, and Chris, maybe you can answer this. What is the, the fifth World Cup quota for the U.S. this year in terms of start spots? Yeah, so our quota this year hasn't changed from last season. Uh, we still have six women uh, for both distance and sprint and five men for distance and sprint. Will there be any extra start spots for the opening weekend um, and the tour to ski? Yeah, so the same rules that we had in, in, in place last year on the World Cup apply this year. And that is, <clears throat> in addition to our six and five, um, any athletes who are ranked in the top 20 in the Sprint World Cup are additional uh, starts for those nations. And they are specific to those athletes. So you've posted um, the athletes that have starts for period one on the World Cup. On the guys' side, three athletes have met objective criteria. They're Simi Hamilton, Eric Bjornsson, who are regular World Cup skiers, and David Norris, who's the overall Super Tour leader uh, for 2017-2018. The rest of those athletes are... Uh, discretionary picks. And I'm just going to run through those names. Uh, Scott Patterson, Patty Caldwell, Ben Muscarden, Adam Martin, Kevin Bolger, Logan Hanneman, and Ben Saxton. You know, some of these are, you know, discretionary picks are, are, are obvious. I mean, Scott Patterson's on the B team. He had a stellar Olympics. He had a really great home and cold uh, 50K. Kevin Bolger had a great moment in Lati. He is also on the B team. And, and we'll get to the women in, in a minute, but can you talk a little bit about how you made these discretionary picks? And when we look at athletes specifically that are not on the U.S. ski team, how you chose those athletes? 
Um, so yeah, uh, as you suggested, we have a new process this year. And that is when we were at the uh, cross-country committee meetings uh, in May in Park City, we created a 14-person working group. That working group has, uh, and, the, and the working group is designed um, to not only help create these selection criteria for the World Championships and the World Cup, but also to nominate the discretionary picks for each period of World Cup. Um, and so this working group has taken the lead on, um, on picking these athletes. And we've really let the club coaches, the senior club coaches who uh, are the majority of this working group, those, those folks have really come up with the names. And those of us who are on the, in the group as U.S. ski team staff have approved those. We've sent the nominations on to um, this new um, discretionary selection committee. They've approved them. So that's been the process. It's not, these aren't names, the names of these athletes. These are not people that we, as national team coaches, suggested. We just agreed with the club coaches' suggestions and then sent them on to the uh, review committee. Are, are you able to talk about who is on that, the group that helps select uh, those athletes that are discretionary picks and to pass them on to you folks? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, um, there are four of us national team staff. Uh, so there's myself, <clears throat> Gus, uh, Matt Wickham and Jason Cork. The athlete rep who is part of this group is Dakota Blackhorse Von Jess. Then we have the, uh, chairperson for the cross country coaches subcommittee. That's August Teague. And then we have eight uh, senior club coaches, uh, and they are Chris Mallory, Joe Hagemiller, Eric Flora, Pepa Milocheva, Austin Caldwell, Dragon Denevsky, Pat O'Brien, and Dan Weiland. Okay. So, I, well, I guess I would have to ask those folks specifically, but, you know, when you look at some of these picks, you know, without pulling up, I believe it would be like list fist list number eight, you know, the final list. Um, would it go down just like strict fist ranking? No. And I think that's, that's always the challenge. If you, you know, anytime you try to create say an objective criteria to select discretionary athletes, it's really hard because if you tie yourself to one particular mode of selection, say it's using fist points or say it's using World Cup points scored in the previous season or the previous period, or say it's using Super Tour points or USSA NRL points, it really hamstrings you. It doesn't allow you to kind of like step back and look at the overall picture. So I think, you know, the coaches that were part of this working group, they did a really good job of stepping back, looking at the whole season last year, looking at who were the standout athletes um, in distance for men, in sprint for men, and then the same on the, on the women's side. And I was impressed with the discussion that we had over these selections, which, by the way, took probably a month and a half. Um, but I was impressed that that we had club coaches who were advocating for athletes who were not part of their clubs, but were from clubs across the nation. Um, and that's really how it's intended to work. The, the coaches um, that are physically on the ground at the Super Tours 
watching these athletes race are weighing in and saying, you know, I really like the way that, that this person is skiing. They were really impressive last season. I think they are probably ready for a shot at the World Cup. You know, if this is a group that's sort of working independently and then passes these nominations or names off to to the coaches, are the coaches, the group of four, you know, Matt, Gus, uh, Chris Grover, you, and Jason Cork, are you at liberty to refuse a discretionary suggestion? We don't have any bylaws, right, for this working group. So, I mean, it's, you know, it's, we're in, we're in the, in the first year of it. We're trying it out. Um, so far it's worked really smoothly, but you know, it's not like we have any sort of like elected representative representation from different regions. We just tried to capture some of the national team staff to make sure we had an athlete rep as part of the group. And then really to include all the senior senior club coaches, because those are the club coaches from whose programs um, these athletes are generally coming to World Cup. We also wanted to have national team staff involved because we are the people that are seeing these athletes come to World Cup and then watching and seeing what they do um, once they hit the ground in Europe. Yes, we can absolutely participate in the discussion. Um, I don't think we really want to be in a situation where we are vetoing um, what the group wants. If the group decides, if if a, a, a big majority of the uh, of the club coaches agree on a certain athlete, then we're gonna we're gonna support that athlete. Um, you know, it, it's I think we're gonna do whatever the majority wants to do. But you know, this is this is the first season of it, and the next step will be for us to sit down in May back in Park City um, at the cross country committee meetings with this group and with the cross country committee and say, how did this work? Is this a good system? Is this something that we want to take forward? Okay. Um, and I know this has brought up, been brought up in the past and, and I, you know, I just doing my due diligence would like to ask it. So, you know, what are some of the arguments against having sort of an open tryout before the world cup season starts that maybe it's on snow in Norway at a high level fist race, maybe it's in Sweden that, you know, give skiers who have improved during the dry land season to go head to head with, you know, both bubble world cup skiers and those domestic based skiers that are vying for, you know, sort of very coveted spots uh, during period one, especially during like a, a championship season where, you know, world ski championships will be held. Yeah, it's a it's a really good it's a good question. This is this is the exact point that Annie Hart, as an athlete rep to the cross country committee, has brought to the cross country committee. Um, she's a really an advocate for for this particular method. I think in in hypothetically, it's hypothetically in a perfect world, it's absolutely what we would do. The challenge is the logistics of it, the practicality of it, in particular being a North American team with lots of North American clubs and trying to run some sort of tryouts in Scandinavia. The challenge becomes, how do, you, how do we as, as clubs support athletes in a tryout situation in Bidestolen or in Rovaniemi or Munio or someplace like that? Do, are we actually sending club coaches and uh, club techs to those places 
to support athletes in a tryout situation at the same time where the other, where perhaps the majority of the athletes in those in those uh, coaches clubs are at home in West Yellowstone, similarly trying to perform, uh, getting ready for for the Super Tour. I think it just stretches everybody too thin. Um, I think most club coaches would say, yeah, I just I just can't do that. I can't be in two places at once. It also makes for an absolute challenge if you have athletes that go over to Europe, get one weekend of races, the races don't go well, and then on Sunday night, they're making tickets for Monday morning to go back to the USA, go to West Yellowstone, try to get back on the Super Tour, get acclimated and get into that series. I think it's just the practicality of it, the logistics of it are a little bit too hard. Um, but, you know, as I mentioned to Annie in these discussions, we are going to, we're going to see how this, the current system with the working group works. And we'll go back to the cross-country committee this next spring and say, is this the way to go? Or would you guys like to see some sort of trial system in Scandinavia? You know, before I kind of move on here, anything you want to mention about discretionary picks or objective uh, qualifiers on the women's side? Um, no, we had great, great discussions about about the women um, as well as the as the men for these picks. And again, kind of the same process with the women was that we had utilized with the men, and um, people were pretty unanimous in the in the names that that went forward. And um, yeah, it, it was it was a good process. First, I want to focus on you know those athletes that are, are would be skiing on the World Cup during period one and potentially would advance to period two and so forth. Um, what's the general pattern that you've set up for athlete progression to the next World Cup period? And you know specifically, if you can speak to women and to men, because I I do believe there's been a change for the ranking for the men. Yeah, that's that's correct. So new this year. Is you know we've always had a situation we've always had a criteria where if you finish in the top 30 in the sprint world cup or the distance world cup then you are invited to the next period of uh of world cup that's been the objective criteria the one major change that we've made to that this year is on the men's side we've changed it to top 40 instead of top 30 and that's simply to recognize the greater density or quality of the men's field there's simply just more men that are packed into the same time back in each race. Um, so you could, you know, we've had outstanding men's performances and those guys might end up in 31st in the distance cup or 32nd in the sprint cup. And yet those are really some of the best USA athletes and we want to see them in the next period of world cup. So that's, that's the change there to, to top 40 um, for men. And then we'll, we'll take a look at it and see how it goes this year and see, you know, as a as a cross country committee, if we want to make any changes to that next spring, and how do you foresee? You know, if an athlete is either ill or isn't quite on form, and say that let's use the men's side as an example, and they're forty fifth, they're forty second. You know, how do you perceive at this point? You know, how you might handle an athlete like that, whether or not they get discretion to the next World Cup period, or, and I have written down here in quotes because I'm thinking of soccer or relegated to the Super Tour. No, it's, it's yeah, good question. The, you know, that, that's what discretion is for. Um, and, 
in the past, uh, those of us who are U.S. ski team coaches are the ones that have had to make those discretionary picks by ourselves, uh, often in consultation with with a club coach somewhere. Um, but those are those are decisions we've had to make ourselves. And now we have this 14 person committee that can really help us with with that decision. And I think it's it's great because it's just more sets of eyes on the same information. And I think this group might take a look and say, oh yeah, this. You know, ex-athlete has been sick for two weeks, but absolutely they're one of our best talents in distance. You have the Tour de Ski coming up. They're a historically good Tour de Ski uh, racer. We want that person to be one of your five or six plus starts in that event. So I, I'm excited about the process. I think it's I think it's going to just kind of give us kind of greater greater community buy-in to, to what we're doing. Okay. And do you foresee, you know, when you, and I'm just kind of thinking extemporaneously here, when you're thinking, when you were talking about the ability to sort of recognize someone, say it's a sprinter, because I've been sort of using that as an example, who's just killing it on the super tour. Do you expect there to be perhaps this year or maybe in the future, more flow back and forth from the world cup back to super tour and maybe back up to world cup? You know, is that something that you feel like should be implemented or do you feel like having it be a little bit more say static and less dynamic and keeping people who are on the world cup and skiing on the world cup there for most of the season i anticipate there will be probably a little bit more movement back and forth i mean this is what you're touching on is one of our greatest challenges as a non-european skiing nation um, if we're a European skiing nation or a Scandinavian nation, it is, it's really easy to swap athletes out on the World Cup, right? Because these athletes come into a World Cup venue on Thursday and they leave on Sunday night or Monday morning and they go back home. If they're not skiing well, it's very easy to select somebody else from your nation and, and sub them in for the next weekend. For those of us from North America or from Asia uh, who are trying to compete on the World Cup, it's really, we can't do that. We can't expect athletes to show up on a Thursday, compete well on the World Cup, and then go home on Sunday or Monday, uh, race domestically for a week, and then come back to perhaps an event that fits their talents better. We just don't have that. The athletes won't ski well. Um, they won't ski well at home. They won't ski well on the World Cup. So we have to, as a nation, we have to be more invested in longer periods of World Cup, still trying to tie specific events to the specific strengths of, of individual athletes. But it's an absolute challenge. And I think a lot of time when people are critical of athletes not coming off back and forth and off the World Cup often enough, they really aren't paying enough attention or giving enough careful consideration to the challenge of the logistics there. So we'll never be as as flexible um, as the European nations, but we will try to be try to to rotate in an athlete or in, athletes in and out uh, as as appropriate and and as is practical. But, you know, this is these are the questions that this working group is now going to have to wrestle with during each period of World Cup. And just 
refresh my memory a bit because I I'm a little fuzzy here. Uh, so like Kevin Bolger, I, he he did not make the Olympics, um, and I believe that Lati weekend where he advanced to the semis was the first competition after Pyeongchang. Is that right? That sounds. <laughs> it's all a little bit. It's all a little bit of a blur for me. <laughs> Um, that sounds that fun. sounds correct to me. Yes, I believe that was. It is typically the first weekend after the championships. That's right. And was he? I, I mean, I think people. I, I know he can pull off a good distance race. Um, was he at the time and uh, leading Super Tour, or was he sort of leading uh, the 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 sprint list? And I'm just curious. I mean, because there's a clear example of bringing up someone at a great time, you know, for it's a world cup field that maybe is a bit spent from the Olympics. He makes the best of opportunity and, and boom, you know, he, he's, he's has start rights for next. Yeah. So I'm just, was he a discretionary pick for that for Lottie? I I just forget. No, he was the, he was the overall super tour leader. Okay. So in that case, the pro—I mean, that's it's the process is working efficiently and effectively in that particular case. Yeah, and you know, I mean, obviously, like when we went to Spring World Cup, we also had a number of invited athletes um, who were not the overall Super Tour leaders as well. Um, I'm trying to remember all the names, but we had we had David Norris there, we had Noah Hoffman, we had Rosie Frankowski, we had Caitlin Patterson. Um, we had Logan Hanneman, Kelsey Finney. So, <clears throat> you know, those all those discretionary um, choices were made by us as U.S. ski team staff, trying looking around, trying to see who's skiing well domestically on Super Tour that did not make the Olympics, who went to the Olympics and is skiing well enough to to go on to World Cup. Uh, tough choices, and and we're excited to have the help of this working group make those choices going forward. I'm just going to go back one second here, and because so, I'm looking here, I just I, I was reminded. I knew Rosie Frankowski had a great, I believe it was a 30k classic at the Olympics. Mm-hmm. She it looks like she is a distance alternate. Um, are you able to discuss that specific? designation you know what does that mean i mean here's someone too who you know at the right day killed it sure yeah just kind of curious about that specific you know no good good question um in rosie's case there were three athletes uh that were identified as being great fits to fill two open women's distance start spots during period one and those were rosie brennan Caitlin Patterson, and Rosie Frankowski. The working group decided that their top two choices were Caitlin Patterson and Rosie Brennan. One thing that the working group um, has been fairly adamant about in our discussions is that in general, we do not want to get into naming alternates for every spot. And um, for example, during World Cup period one and the first period of upcoming Super Tour, there is going to be active qualification for the World Championships going on in in both places. Um, so a lot of athletes who are nominated to get a spot on the World Cup will decline those spots 
because they know that Super Tour is quite possibly an easier path to make the World Championship team. The working group did not want to go down the list further and further and further, um, naming alternate after alternate in the case where you had multiple people declining um, an invitation to World Cup, because then perhaps we end up with an athlete on the World Cup who's really not in a place where they're ready to have any sort of moderate success um, or career-building experience on the World Cup. However, so, so in general, when we named these discretionary effects to World Cup period one, there were not alternates named for each spot. However, um, the working group felt that in Rosie's case, there was someone who was a proven entity and could easily swap in for Caitlin Patterson or Rosie Brennan. So they did, in that instance, want to have one alternate uh, named for women's distance, which is a competitive field of women for us. The USA has strong women sprinters and strong women distance skiers right now. Yeah, so has Rosie Frankowski uh, accepted that? I mean, it, it, because it is, you know, it precludes her from like taking, quote, that easier path on the Super Tour, uh, at least, you know, early on in the season. Has she accepted the spot? She turned it down. All right. And will that spot be filled or is it, we're just assuming? October 1st is the date where I've asked all discretionary athletes to let me know if they are actually attending or planning on attending World Cup period one so that we can move forward with the logistics of, of planning the transport and, and lodging and everything for World Cup period one. So I haven't heard from the majority of athletes yet about whether they're going to accept or decline their nominations. Okay. All right. Thanks. Okay. Um, can you discuss this change specifically? Um, and I'm just going to quote it here from your blog. You created a best of a best 11 of 14 super tour results selection to round out the final world cup finals team to encourage athletes to continue to race in Europe mid season, rather than feeling the need to attend every super tour competition. Can you maybe give a little bit of context for that decision, you know, expanding um, how you're looking at Super Tour results and applying it to World Cup finals? Yeah, so this was actually a suggestion that came from the club coaches and I believe from some of the athlete reps during our Congress meetings and a great suggestion. And that was um, obviously we have a greater quota of athletes with our five five and five nations group athletes that are invited to the World Cup finals in Quebec City. We have a bigger quota there than we do anywhere else on the World Cup during the season. Um, we'll for sure be selecting some athletes from Super Tour. However, we didn't want to create a situation where an athlete skied well during the first period of Super Tour, U.S. Nationals, maybe they went to the Lake Placid Super Tour in early January. Um, but felt like in order to make the World Cup finals in Quebec City, they had to stay in the United States and Canada racing Super Tour and had to turn down any opportunity to, to go and race in Europe, whether that was World Cup or uh, Europa Cup or the World Championships or the World Junior U23s. So we wanted to make sure that, that athletes still felt like they could go 
race in Europe, have those very important race experiences, um, but still perhaps have gathered enough points on the Super Tour to qualify them to race World Cup finals. Um, so we'll see how it we'll see how it works, but I think it's a I think it's a nice fix that will hypothetically select the right athletes to to World Cup finals. Looking at earlier in the in in the World Cup calendar and specifically the Tour de Ski. So the question is, it looks like you added some language about providing Tour de Ski starts for the overall leaders of the Super Tour, both men and women, um, after the second weekend of Fall Super Tour and Noram Racing, uh, which I believe concludes like December 9th. Can you discuss why you added that feature? Because I do believe that's new. So in terms of this, yeah, the question about the, the new language concerning uh, the Super Tour leaders to the Tour de Ski. Yes, um, in the past, of course, that's always a problematic period because it overlaps with U.S. Nationals. So athletes are either at U.S. Nationals during that time or they're, they're on Tour de Ski. Um, in the past, we have not had a direct path from Super Tour to the Tour de Ski. Um, this year, we felt like it was important to start adding that, to have those Super Tour leaders on the, on the Tour de Ski team, um, or at least give them the opportunity to decline it if they want and go race at U.S. Nationals. This year, because it's a world championship year and because U.S. Nationals are so important in terms of qualifying for the world championships, I would anticipate that some athletes who are super tour leaders may decline a trip to the tour to ski. Um, however, it's their choice and, and they can go in either direction. However, next year um, in 2019-20, there's no world championships. Um, and I think that will be a year where we will see our super tour leaders for sure want to come to the tour to ski. What you're thinking on maybe some bubble athletes that are racing World Cup and maybe possible U.S. ski team members that either choose to do the tour or not do the tour and go back and race senior nationals. I know, for example, Patty Caldwell stayed and did the tour to ski, uh, whereas Scott Patterson went back to senior nationals. And I spin a bit, but I think Scott was offered tour to ski starts rights i'm just i i forget but you know how might you handle that situation as well this year and that relates a little bit more to like world champ stuff but i guess we'll get to that in a sec but are you able to answer that yes uh yeah you're right um scott was offered a start in the tour de ski uh last year and he declined it to go back to to us nationals any athlete who hasn't made the objective criteria to go on to tour to ski from World Cup period one will need to be nominated by the discretionary committee. Why did you folks, and you spoke a little bit about this, but you know why the need to, to establish um, like a separate discretionary selection review group? Um, you know, obviously, if anybody reads Faster Skier, it's been a, you know, something that people have not necessarily talked about a review group, but talked more about like, what exactly is discretion? It seems amorphous. So I'm curious if you can speak specifically, you know, before we move on to world champs about why finally, you know, creating this type of group. Yeah, the 
the group was actually the suggestion of, of Luke Bodensteiner, and he came up with uh, the idea and the language. Um, this may be something that he is actually implementing across different uh, ski and snowboard disciplines at the organization. So I think it's it's probably something that's just new to to each discipline's criteria, and I think it's it's a great thing. It just you know it gives it gives another several sets of eyes on whatever discretion selections that that the group is that the group has made in our case our 14 person working group and i've already seen this process um, working really well in that our working group came up with our discretionary picks for world cup period one we sent them to the discretionary selection working group and right away luke came back with some great questions about three athletes. He didn't realize that two of the athletes had retired, but his question is, how are you skipping over these two athletes who had then retired? And he also talked about another athlete who we'd skipped over who had decided already that, that she was going to um, go to school this fall and actually not race World Cup this fall. So already that's kind of a great check and balance, if you will, on the on the working group by having you know a discretionary review committee that's asking tough questions about you know are you are you skipping over athletes with these elections so uh, chris you know you mentioned we had a conversation last uh spring and you mentioned the likelihood of eliminating the final stage of the of the tour de ski from inclusion in championship selection criteria you've uh, at least as it relates to distance um you've made the choice to exclude it. Uh, can you just discuss that? Yeah, so this is obviously a place where a few people have have criticized the past selection criteria in that the Alpermi's final climb is obviously a special event. It's not an event that we would find at a major championships like the World Championships or the Olympics. So why include it in the selection period? I think from our perspective as a staff, we've been kind of ambivalent about it, you know, whether to include it or not. Typically, those athletes who are who excel at a final climb stage, whether that's Chris Freeman, Noah Hoffman, Liz Steven, Jesse Diggins, Sadie Bjornsson, Rosie Brennan, those are the types of athletes that are also going to go to a major championships and have some of your best distance results. So, yes, the the particular event doesn't is not something that we find at a major championships. Is it a good indicator actually of somebody's aerobic capacity and their ability to go on and have a top distance result at a major championships? Probably. Um, but you know, if there are people in the community who think it's unfair, let's take it out of the selection. Gus, do the data suggest that there's a correlation between? The Cermi climb, I don't know if you've crunched those numbers and like future, you know, type of championship success. Uh, you know, I haven't looked at that. And and anytime you're looking at these sorts of things, you have to be careful when you're looking at a criteria built for a specific event versus a criteria for an entire season or an entire career. Um, and for the specific event, you know, I, I think it's much more difficult and it's much more uh set up you know in favor of the way we have it 
currently. Okay, so next question uh, relates to something that came up during uh, Olympic Winter Game selection criteria and how that all played out. And it was the five sprinter max rule for both men and women, meaning five men, five women max. And um, Chris, in your blog, I believe you used the word, you know, or or stated that the language has been strengthened to clarify this five sprinter max rule. Can you explain how that will play out this year and address, you know, contextually how that looks when an athlete dually qualifies, meaning like a Jesse Diggins who will presumably qualify objectively both in sprint and distance? Yeah. So, you know, we going into last year's Olympic selection, we thought that we that this was clear. However, um, you know, one athlete uh, did challenge the language and her contention was that if an athlete had qualified uh, via a uh, distance World Cup selection, as well as a sprint selection, that um, you could hypothetically say that they qualified on distance and it would leave the door open for more sprinters to come in from, say, domestic selection. So we tighten the language so that you know our intentions, and I think the community's intentions, of capping capping uh, the number of sprinters to make the team at five were really enforced. And uh, it just means that if, yeah, if you have a Jesse Diggins and she qualifies um, for the championship via both the sprint and the distance World Cup criteria, that she will in fact take one of those sprint start spots. Or, or sorry, sprint qualification spots. Okay, uh, I think that's pretty clear. <laughs> Anything to add on that? No, I think you know the the five you know the the five um, sprinter cap idea goes back to when our original working group, I believe, in 2015, wrote this modern form for this current championship selection, and it goes back. To, and the suggestion was it came from James Southam, who was an athlete rep, who was then working with our with our working group to create the 2017 world championship selection. And the idea is a great one. It's like, you, you don't want to fill your, you, you go to a world championship or the Olympics, you have two quote unquote sprint events with a sprint and a team sprint. And then you have four distance events. You don't want to fill your championship team with sprinters. You want to make sure you have good distance skiers for the majority of the events there. And so that's where the idea of the five sprinter cap comes from. All right. So you had mentioned in your blog and referencing to this, this following following question that has to do with this phase two discretionary selection as quote, perhaps the most significant change in the criteria. Can you describe, you know, specifically what, what is phase two discretionary selection and how might it apply to world championship selection? Yeah, so this is, as I mentioned, this is kind of the most significant change in the criteria. And what it really intends to do is to be able to select athletes from domestic super tour competition to the major championship teams using pools of athletes, men's distance, men's sprint, women's distance, and women's sprint. We obviously found ourselves last year in a situation going into the Olympics where we were feeling compelled due to the language in the criteria 
to look at selection as one list of athletes and to look at athletes who had more points in any discipline as the whether they were a man or a woman, a distance skier or a sprinter, as the next best athlete to go into to to be nominated to the team. By moving the by moving this secondary or domestic selection from an objective domestic selection to a discretionary selection, it gives us coaches discretion to be able to select from the correct pool to fill an open start spot. So if we know that we need to fill a men's 50K skate spot, we can look to the men's distance list and not to an overall combination of women's and men's distance and sprint lists. Um, so this is kind of a creative way that we feel is going to solve the issue that we had last year. Um, the USOC has given us the thumbs up to go ahead and pursue it. And we're hoping that it selects more of the right athletes at the bottom of the selection. Okay. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, and you mentioned in your blog post that the max size you envision at this point for uh, World Ski Championships is is a combined men, men's and women's team of 16 athletes uh, total. You know, can you talk a little bit about how you derive that number and... You know, you do note that there might be some wiggle room either way, um, but can you talk a little bit about that number, sixteen? Yeah, you know, it's it's simply intended to give the community a bit of a heads up in terms of what our expectations for team size are going to be. Our expectation is that we are not going to bring a lot of athletes who we do not plan on starting at the championships. Instead, we want to make sure that we are bringing athletes who we fully intend to start at the championships. And um, a team of 16, and this may end up being a smaller team, it could be 15, it could be a bigger team, it could be 17 or 18 athletes. We'll have to see kind of uh, which athletes emerge, how many athletes crossover athletes who might be racing multiple events, how many athletes are racing a singular event and maybe are an alternate for another event. Um, it, it, we're not, we're not uh, pigeonholed to taking one specific number of athletes. However, we want to make sure that the community knows that we do not intend to bring a lot of extra athletes, and 16 might be an approximate target number. Okay. So from your past experience, um, you know, in this particular case, you'd be working with, you know, eight male athletes. And... I know there's been some rumbling in the past. It's like, you know, either a start spot perhaps on the men's side doesn't get filled in, say, a 50K race, or the perception is that we're not fielding our strongest men's 4x10 relay. You know, how do you balance those two events, per se, you know, as, as, as an example, with either capping at 16 or expanding beyond 16 to, you know, field those teams that may not necessarily be a metal potential team, but on the given day, you know, I suppose you never know. Yeah. It's a good question. We, we always want to fill our start spots and we want to fill our start spots with the right athletes. And I can, I can tell you that it's, it's disappointing from the staff's perspective 
um, as well as the home community's perspective when we leave a spot unfilled. As you suggested, it's not uncommon at the end of a major championships, especially as we approach the men's 50 kilometer event, for there to be an illness or two on the team um, and also for a healthy uh, 50K starter to say, I don't want to do the race, even though my name is technically down on paper as one of the potential starters, I feel tired from some of the other races. I have a key race that's coming up on the World Cup in five days or three days or whatever it is. And I don't think the 50 kilometer is in my best interest. So when we look at uh, potential starts at the World Championships, we will absolutely attempt to pencil in the best athletes uh, from World Cup and from Super Tour who should be filling those start spots. When we actually get to the event, sometimes there will be a fourth man that decides not to start for whatever reason. When it comes to the relay, and specifically our relay last year in Pyeongchang, you are absolutely correct that we did not have our strongest team on the starting line for a number of reasons. One of the, one of the main reasons is how the bottom of the selection worked last year um, domestically. The changes that we've made in this selection criteria, moving the, uh, the super tour or domestic selection from being an objective selection to the phase two discretionary selection is intended to solve that problem by better identifying those distance male athletes, or it could be female athletes, um, who really could contribute to a fast relay team as opposed to, say, having to take the next person on an overall list. Okay, so in the criteria, uh, the number 120, as it refers to world rank, pops up a few times as kind of the, the threshold benchmark for whether or not the selection committee or, or the group of coaches would be looking at an athlete as having the potential to make a team. Um, can you... You know, talk a little bit about how you came up with that number, and you know, I'm presuming it. It, get, you know, you have an idea of like if someone's beyond 120, the likelihood of them meddling or having a top 20 race is may not be too positive. Um, so, can you just flesh that out for us a little bit? So, similar to kind of the approximate team size for the World Championship. The idea of identifying a world rank of, of 120 is intended to provide the community with a little bit of um, a heads up on what our expectations are for the caliber of an athlete that should be representing the United States at a major championship. Um, 120 world rank, Gus has done quite a bit of research on this, and 120 world rank captures every athlete um, who had a medal or had their first medal at a major championships in the last 10 years. And it, and, and it captures every outlier. So there were a few outliers that came up, you know, to, uh, to 100 world rank or 116 world rank. Most athletes who, who um, had their first medal at a world championships or an Olympics in the past 10 years had world ranks that were much, much lower, as you, as you might imagine. They were under 40 on world rank or under 30 on world rank. 
we our thought is that if you have an athlete with 120 world rank they are at least at a certain standard where they might be able to go and have a top 30 result or have a top 40 result um, and it might also help identify a younger athlete who is just starting to build their profile or an athlete who's who is um, who is coming up quickly however if we have an athlete who has a world rank that's greater than 120, but is clearly the next best athlete um, that should be selected to the team, and we have an open start spot where we do want to put that athlete in the in the uh, in the start at the World Championships. We are not obligated to um, to ignore them or to not take them because they have a greater world rank. We can absolutely take a an athlete with a greater world rank 120. Okay, and just to be clear, when we talk about those athletes that have medaled in the past, say, decade, we're talking about from every nation, although the U.S. obviously has medals now, but I'm assuming that's what, okay. Yes. There is some some language, and again, I don't know if it's new. I just don't recall seeing it before on selection criteria having to do with procedures if an athlete has an appeal or an aggrieve an appeal or a grievance as it relates to selection. I know this came into play last year during the Olympics. There was some behind the scenes discussions with athletes talking to U.S. Ski and Snowboard, athletes talking to, and then being referred to, I believe, the U.S. Olympic Committee. Can you talk a little bit about the inclusion of this language in the selection criteria? Yes, this, you know, this is always these resources, um, you know, the U.S. Ski and Snowboard uh, Appeals and Grievance Procedures and the USOC Ombudsman, uh, Casey Wallace, that are listed in the in the new criteria. Um, those those procedures and that person have always been available to to all athletes. Um, however, we just wanted to to put it front and center. So this was actually a suggestion that came from the cross country committee to include this information front and center in the selection criteria. We think it's also a great idea and um, just wanted to make sure that everybody who was part of the process knew exactly what their rights were. Is it an athlete's right? You know, if they're have a grievance with the selection committee to bypass filing anything specific with U.S. Ski and Snowboard and going first directly to the U.S. Olympic Committee and talking to Casey Wallace while Simon simultaneously, you know, informing, you know, say you, Chris, that, you know, look, I'm filing this grievance. Oh, absolutely. So athlete can go directly, directly to the USOC and talk to Casey. That's what Casey is, is there for. Any athlete who feels unfairly skipped over in any selection process, Casey is, Casey is there to, to talk to and to be, um, to be a resource for that athlete. So I absolutely encourage anyone who ever feels like they, they're not, you know, their, their petition is not being heard to, to utilize that process. Um, anything you want to add about world championship uh, selection criteria here? No, I just, you know, I mean, this, this was like a, this was a four or five month process of actually, you know, going through the potential issues that we had last year with the cross country committee in May, discussing how to fix them, using the working group to, um, to come up with solutions. 
bouncing those solutions off Luke Bodensteiner, who obviously deals with selection criteria every day via, you know, a, a lot of different disciplines at U.S. Ski and Snowboard, bouncing ideas off the USOC, then bringing it to our cross-country committee um, for their approval. Um, so it, it was a long process, but there were, you know, whatever, 30, 30 different sets, 30, 40 different sets of eyes on the criteria. So I think it was it was a good process, a worthwhile process. Will there be things for us to fix next spring? Probably. Um, I mean, my, my experience now with, with selection criteria over the nine years that, that I've been the head coach um, have, has been that selection criteria always work great at the top of the selection and are always somewhat problematic at the very bottom of the selection, no matter how they're designed, how well the intentions are of the, of the design, there's always going to be some sort of imperfect scenario that happens at the, at the bottom of selection. That's just simply the, the, the nature of selection criteria. Uh, but we're excited for the, we're excited to see how it works. We think it's been a really good process and we think at the end of the day, we've come up with a very good selection criteria. Okay, so on to uh, the 2019-2020 uh, U.S. ski team selection criteria that was also posted. You know, generally speaking, can you talk a little bit about any changes that were made or what the big changes that were made and why you adopted those changes? Yeah, so, you know, I, I'll do some t- I'll do a little bit of talking here and then I'll turn it over to Gus because Gus has been the person that's really done a lot of the number crunching. But, you know, Gus and I... Oh, I dived into this process. I don't know when it was, Gus, but it was maybe last fall um, that we really started, maybe even last summer, that we just started discussing um, a better way to create a U.S. ski team criteria. And, I, you know, the criticism that we'd had from the community, which I think was very accurate criticism, was that our selection criteria was so tough for the U.S. ski team that we were having to name most of the team via discretion. And anytime that we had to use that much discretion, that of course opened us up to a lot of criticism and a lot of misunderstanding and people not knowing exactly what the expectations were um, and where lines were drawn. Um, So I asked Gus to do a lot of data mining um, for us, uh, going back to, to once again, looking at medalists over the past decade from every country in both individual events and in in relay events and trying to identify those athletes who could potentially be on a path to to contribute to both or to either an individual or a team medal for the USA in the future. Those are those are the athletes who satisfy the what the mission and the vision of US ski and snowboard are in terms of winning medals at the at the highest level. So the new criteria has, as you've seen, a lot of uh, world rank-based selection um, procedures. Specifically, we've also added a few changes to, say, how an A-team athlete or a D-team athlete are nominated to the team. Um, In the past, the A-team selection was based on finishing in the top 30 at the end of the previous World Cup season in either the distance World Cup or the Sprint World Cup. However, when we created that standard, it was during the time when the Red Group 
and red group support money from the from the various OCs was also provided to the top 30 in the distance or the Sprint World Cup. That ended several years ago. Um, this day, these days, it's only the top 15 in either distance or sprint that are awarded red group travel money and free lodging nights. So one change on the A-team side is that we've tightened the criteria from top 30 to top 15, but we've also added some, some different methods for being nominated to a A-team, specifically finishing top six on the World Cup in an individual sprint or distance event, um, or these new world rank standards. On the D team, we had had a very uh, onerous standard for qualifying for the US ski team. I shouldn't say on the D team. We had said that anyone at the World Juniors or U23s who has a podium in an individual event will be nominated to the team. Obviously, that was a very tough standard to make. Uh, luckily, we've had some incredible athletes in the last several years who have actually made that standard um, for the first time in history, at least on the world junior side. We've had it happen on the U23 side several times. Um, but we wanted to expand that. And Gus, again, did some great work in terms of going back and tracing, uh, for example, what a top 10 individual finish at world junior championships means for an athlete from many nations given potential to eventually have a world championship or Olympic medal. Um, so a lot of research went into this. We're really excited in that we think we are gonna create a new selection criteria which selects the vast majority of, a, of the 2019-2020 US ski team uh, via discretion as opposed, or sorry, via objective criteria as opposed to discretion. And um, we think it's going to create a pathway where everyone in the community can much better understand what we're looking for. But I think at this point, it's probably helpful for Gus to, to dive in and talk a little bit about, um, about world rank and maybe a little bit about the top 10 at world junior standard. Take it, Gus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, still here. So, uh, Continuing on, on what Chris said, I think, you know, when you when you look at this criteria, the important thing is to say, what is the goal of this criteria? And as Chris alluded to, it is to form a team that is capable of winning medals at World Championships and uh, the Olympics. And so, you know, the, what made sense to me was to look at who has actually won medals at World Championships and Olympics. Um and so actually taking the same list as Chris mentioned earlier with the medalists from the last 10 years, um, and, you know, you could choose really any time frame, uh, keeping in mind there was some changes uh, with sprinting heat size in 2007. Uh, maybe fields weren't as competitive in early 2000s. Uh, we just looked at the last 10 years, which gave us a, an ample a number of championships. Um, and that gave us, I think 56 women and 66 men, uh, maybe 67. I think there was a few biathletes scattered in there that didn't have any fist point profiles. Uh, but it was basically what kind of metrics can you look at to, to backtrack their careers and, and form a criteria from. And, you know, obviously they all have ages. Uh, they all have individual results. 
they all have FIS points to a certain extent. Um, but there's strengths and weaknesses which can, with, with all kind of every metric you can look at. Um, just looking at an individual result, obviously you can have an outlier result. So then do you look at two results? Do you look at three results? Where do you draw the line there? Um, if you use FIS points, you may set a minimum of 30. And on a given year, you may only have three people in the world under 30. Uh, or you may have 100 people in the world under 30. So it's, it's very difficult to uh, have a single line there that you look at from one year to the other. Uh, thus, ended up looking at world ranking, which is essentially just your FIS points, uh, whether it's distance or sprint, and it's, it's your top five results from the past uh, 12 months. Um, you are allowed to go to three or four, but you are penalized for it. Um, and so we just were able to backtrack each of the medalist athletes over the past, uh, over their entire careers, however long they extended, uh, and, and looked at kind of what their progressions were. Uh, and, and as I said, we ended up with, uh, you know, 50 and 60 athletes there. But we're kind of searching for a little bit of a, a bigger database uh, or a bigger cohort of athletes. So we actually partnered with uh, some of the people who have done similar work to this with the Alpine criteria. And they had looked, they had taken this same cohort and uh, looked at what was the best world rank that each of these medalists had achieved at some point. Um, and so for cross country, if you're looking at the individual medalists, uh, I think over 90% of them, 95% were had achi achieved a world ranking of, of top 15 at some point in their career. So what we ended up doing is, is taking everyone who had a, in a top 15 ranking uh, in the last 10 years, and that we were able to expand the cohort there to about uh, 90 for men and about 80 for women. Uh, so a little bigger size, which which always helps in these sorts of things. And and what that does essentially is it just takes out some of the the outlier performances, uh, you know, in an individual race that maybe there's wax or bad luck or just something that comes in uh, to play. So it really just taking the best athletes in the world. And and so the criteria is is very much built around what does it take to be top fifteen in the world. Um, that's kind of the number that we've looked at to win an individual medal. Um, and then it was just taking those athletes and backtracking their world ranks over the years and forming a progression from that. Um, and the, the line that is kind of an A-team line as far as world ranks go uh, very much looks at individual medal possibilities and... The B team line more closely mimics athletes who maybe have uh, not quite as good of a chance at an individual medal, but are certainly well in play for a relay medal and or sprint relay medal. Here's a question. You know, this nomination, in particular, I'm thinking about younger skiers. And there's a direct correlation between like year of birth and where you where one should stand in the world rank. 
Um, you know, is there any concern that like a well-endowed junior athlete might kind of play that fist point game? Not to say that they wouldn't be deserving, but get themselves, you know, and spend a couple winters in Scandinavia or wherever chasing points? Uh, I mean, <laughs> sure. But, you know, honestly, these are pretty hard criterion to make. And so if, if they are scoring these points, it's not going to be by accident. And if they do get these results, uh, those are the people we want on the team. Um, yeah, and I just think about like how having fast skiers in a cohort domestically, oftentimes, you know, maybe it's anecdotal, helps others get fast. So I'm just thinking about like, does it, you know, if you have skiers doing that, does it diminish the pool? Does it, what does it, what are sort of the, the effects it has on that cohort moving forward? Mm-hmm. Well, when you look at the kind of the point profile, uh, at a younger age, the points and a la world rank required uh, are absolutely attainable in the U.S. And athletes have, junior athletes have attained these in the U.S. Um, we actually have a number of races, whether it's super tour or even collegiate races that have very good points. Um, as you progress through the uh, I guess maturity levels of the criteria, there is a point where it becomes very difficult to uh, attain, especially the A-team criteria, without racing on the World Cup um, because you need that zero-point penalty. And I think that makes sense. If you have people getting named to the A-team, they should be skiing successfully on the World Cup. You know, if the perception is, and I, I, it, it looks to me like the standards have been tightened a little bit for, you know, A-team qualification. If fewer of those athletes are making the A-team, but you still have the same number of skiers, for example, on the A and B team collectively, does any more money go to any B team athletes? Yeah, I can, I can answer that question, Jason. I, I don't think, I, I don't necessarily agree with the fact, with your suggestion that it's been tightened. Yes, we did go from top 30 on the World Cup to top 15 to reflect those athletes who um, would be supporting the U.S. program by bringing in red group travel money and free lodging nights. Uh, but adding the world rank and adding the top six individual finish, I think, also kind of broadens it back out a little bit, if you will. Um, and if you look at the five athletes who qualified for the A-team this past season, they also would have made this standard um, uh, for this new criteria, as would have uh, at least Keegan and Liz, I believe, um, in their finishes from last year, even though they are now retired. So I don't know if it necessarily tightens the the A team standard um, that much. Um, hard to say about budgets; they kind of tend to <laughs> fluctuate. <laughs> from year to year. Um, I can tell you that the U.S. Ski and Snowboard is making a very concerted effort to put more funding into B-team athletes right now. And um, um, the first step that um, Tiger and Luke and the leadership of the ski team made already this spring 
was to pledge $5,000 to each B-team athlete's room, board, and travel for a World Cup. So that's been step one. The secondary step has been to really con continue to drive um, donations and gifts to the Marolt Endowment, which is uh, which each athlete, each unfunded athlete at the ski team, can apply to for uncovered travel, travel and lodging expenses, and that is becoming a greater and greater resource for all the B team and D team athletes. So there's some great kind of new funding mechanisms for B and D team athletes uh, within within U.S. ski and snowboard. And we are continuing to look for um, outside ideas and outside support mechanisms to support those athletes as well. Like the fundraiser that we did <clears throat> with the Oregon Nordic Ski Foundation um, in Bend while we were out there with you guys um, that helped us raise money so that no B or T D team athletes paid any camp expenses in terms of um, trail passes, room, and board, um, transport, anything like that for, for the Bend camp. So we'll continue to look for those, those opportunities. You know, I mean, what would you say? Because, you know, looking at the criteria, it, it is, to me, it looks very, there's, there's some very good concrete aspects to it. And without going through like all the the numbers of year of birth and what specific world rank an athlete might attain, I'm assuming that you would suggest or both of you would suggest that athletes who are aspiring to US ski team kind of take a look if they haven't already or parents take a look because um, it seems to be spelled out pretty clearly. It's that sort of what you're hoping people do with this? Yeah, abs absolutely. I mean, this is our, you know, our intention with this is to take the guesswork out of being nominated to the U.S. ski team. It was such a tough standard before when it was simply top 30 in the world uh, in either World Cup distance or sprint, plus podium performances from U23s and U20 and, and World Juniors. That was such a tough standard. And we were using so much discretion to kind of round out the team that our intention here is to really provide parents and coaches and athletes with a roadmap of exactly how to qualify for, for these teams. And I think we should definitely, you know, have Gus talk a little bit about the change in terms of uh, expanding qualification um, to top 10 finishes at World Junior Championships, as well as U23s, because that, that for young athletes, you know, world rank can be a little nebulous. They can't control that so much beyond going out and racing as hard as they can and lowering their, their fist points profile. Uh, but the idea of going out and having a top 10 finish at a World Junior Championships or a U23 Championships provides them with a more concrete, bigger window um, of uh, results to go out and, and attain. Okay, and do you want to answer that, uh, Gus? You know, I think... And Chris, I think what you're referring to, you're, it's a D-team nomination. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. So do you want to answer that, why that was expanded a bit, uh, Gus? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, I actually did kind of a, a deep dive into World Junior results, um, looking at what athletes were top three, what were top five, who were top ten, who had multiple top tens, multiple podiums, who was uh, – 
podiumed in the distance race versus the sprint race, skate race versus the classic, kind of looked at about every permutation and tracked those athletes' careers uh, forward uh, to current day and looked at who's been the most successful. And, uh, you know, without breaking down the disciplines too much, uh, the criteria doesn't get into that, really identified top 10 as a number that uh, warrants pretty good success down the road and gives you a very good chance of uh, becoming top 15 in the world uh, with the world ranking down down the road, uh, particularly on the women's side, uh, as the progression there is, is a little bit shorter. Um, so it, it is a way of identifying our, our good young talent, not only in a world rank, based uh, format, but also identifying athletes who are able to uh, kind of rise to the challenge uh, at a championship event, um, which is one thing, you know, you alluded to sports that to use uh, maybe different qualifying criteria. And I've, I've spoken a lot with uh, some of the data people at USA Swimming, and, uh, and that's one of the things they look at there. So, uh, I think it's interesting to have one aspect that can uh, be able to qualify the uh, a world rank, but then another that's, hey, if you're going to this specific event that we've kind of identified as a big deal and succeeding, uh, we want skiers who can rise to the challenge. And that also uh, is taken into account here. Did I miss anything on that U.S. ski team criteria, Gus, Chris, that I should have drill down on more i would want to make sure we get i saw there's some comments you know on some of the previous uh articles and just want to make sure our our emails or whatever get included just because i'm happy to answer any of those i've had some discussions with some domestic skiers uh about just the criteria in general and and sometimes it's easier to explain questions one-on-one and i'm happy to do that so let's make make sure we can get our contacts in there at some point i will post those com- well what is your email gus i'll post it with the article but what's your email uh gus.kating with the u.s ski and snowboard.org okay chris i uh, yeah and mine's obviously yeah chris.grover at u.s ski and snowboard.org um where and is is spelled out by the way um but you know i think overall um in terms of this criteria, it's, you know, we're trying something new this year. This is the first year of a radically new uh, criteria. Do we need to make adjustments to it this coming spring when we actually see how it works or where it falls short? Absolutely. Um, I think with any other, just like any other criteria, we're going to have to work to kind of constantly make it better. But I'm really, I'm really thankful to to Gus in particular for the hundreds of hours um, that he has put into to this project and to helping us design something that hopefully really identifies athletes of all different ages who are on the path to future success at the highest level. And um, you know, one thing that we didn't talk about is that this criteria does still include discretion. So if there are athletes who are clearly um, on that path and for whom this criteria simply does not work for one reason or another, 
we're still going to have the ability to select them to the team. So I feel really confident that we're going to get get the right team and get a better team with this criteria. And hopefully it makes it that much more transparent and objective for everyone in the community. You know, Chris, this is a, a question for you. Do you- do you feel like even though year to year you guys have made modifications to criteria, you've clearly in this iteration are, are trying to spell out for athletes a little bit more clearly about like what expectations are. Do you feel like in the past 10 years, you folks that, you know, really haven't missed anybody in the, in the sort of us ski team hug, if that makes sense, like you guys have not missed a skier and given them, you know, at least a few opportunities on the world cup to, to prove it. Yeah, I, I would say that. I mean, I feel like, I feel like there's a few athletes out there that retired too early. <laughs> that's, that's for sure. There's some people that stepped away from the sport before they really got to see what their potential is. I was dismayed to see a couple of people step down um, and not continue ski racing this spring. Um, some people that had a lot of talent, I thought, and could be some USA stars for for the future. But in general, there's so many opportunities that we have. There's so many different ways to identify yourself. I think a neat thing about our sport is that it's not really like it's not a traditional talent ID sport where you have to you know swim a certain lap time or you have to run a certain track time, um, and that becomes your gateway to opening up future competition um, opportunities. In cross-country skiing, it's not about what you do in the gym or the track or the pool. It's about how you put everything together out on the ski course, including your mental toughness, including your finesse, your proprioception, your aerobic capacity, your anaerobic capacity, your strength, your specific strength, et cetera, et cetera. It's how you put all those things together. And we have race a great race series like Super Tour. We have a great race series like Europa Cup, uh, like World Cup. People get many opportunities to demonstrate exactly what their potential is. And those with outstanding potential get more and more opportunities. So I don't feel like we I don't feel like there are people that we just haven't had a chance to see. We're getting to see everybody um, come across the radar screen. So I, I feel like, yes, we continue to make criteria better and better. These criteria don't really affect our very best skiers. Our very best skiers are making the criteria no matter how they're designed. Um, where, the, where there's an impact is at the very bottom of the selection, those athletes who are on the bubble of making a respective team or not. And if, if an athlete for some reason falls on the wrong side of that and doesn't make a certain team, there are all sorts of other competition pathways for them to um, to show their talent. I think Kevin Bolger that you brought up earlier is a great example of somebody who didn't qualify for this last year's Olympic team, uh, but continued to improve during the season, to race faster during the season, uh, to begin to win races on Super Tour, then gets the nod to come up to World Cup, seizes the opportunity, and has one of the historical best entrances to the World Cup by a USA athlete of any time uh, of of all time. Um, so those examples are more rare, 
but the opportunities are there. You can you can miss out on a championship team, um, but you can still create a new. I mean, you can still utilize this pathway that already exists to to uh, to create new opportunities for yourself. Thanks for your time. Appreciate it, both of you. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you, Jason, for all the the time and research that you put into asking all these questions. Well, I missed a couple things. <laughs> I had to be corrected a few times. So, um, yeah, thank you, and uh, good luck, whatever. I guess it's fall now, or get close to fall. So have fun over in Europe, Chris. Gus, have fun in Park City. Yeah, thanks, Jason. See ya. Okay, wow, you made it. Thanks for listening. <laughs>